We interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 2, Sheffield United 0. Red Bull lights it 2, Halsberg 1. Werner Braden 6, Cologne 1. Adelaide Crows 46, Brisbane Lions 83. Brisbane Broncos 12, Gold Coast Titans 30, Rory McIlroy 13 under, tied 11th. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Hello, and thank you for joining us for episode four of the Utility Players. We have another fantastic show ahead of us. We are going to be joined later by our first non-playing guest. We have Sarah Wilson, international uh, field hockey umpire, part of the uh, International Hockey Federation's elite panel for Olympic umpires. So we have some wonderful conversations with her later on around her journey into umpiring and what uh, the picture of umpiring looks like in and around the COVID pandemic that's uh, sweeping the country. Uh, but before we get on to that and the rest of the show, uh, some more victories this week in our classified results, Rory. Yeah, I mean, we certainly got on better than last week, which was pretty upsetting for us all involved. But our football teams in particular seem to have done pretty well. Um, we kind of highlighted the misery of Arsenal last week. So it was excellent to see them showing a bit more fight and a bit more spirit. And of course, my Werner Bremen side uh, managing to just about hold on to Bundesliga status at the moment. They won at the weekend and Düsseldorf lost. So that meant they went into third bottom, which means they go into a playoff against the third team in the Bundesliga too. So we'll be bringing you news of that next week as we have it. I think um, it's safe to say when when the Bundesliga returns and, and you stuck your allegiances to Werner Brennan, you were doing it with a little bit of trepidation and uh, and so far so good. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm their lucky charm. Well, <laughs> well, maybe we should be asking them for some sort of recognition. That's a very, <laughs> that's a very good point. And how are you feeling ahead of uh, ahead of the the, you know, the relegation or promotion battle uh, coming up in the double header? Well, so I mean, Heidenheim, who are playing, have never been in the Bundesliga. Now, I can't say that my German football knowledge is fantastic, but that fills me with hope that they're not the strongest Bundesliga 2 team, but I'm very much making assumptions here. So we'll, we'll see. And uh, and in terms of my German team, uh, Tino Werner, who um, who I've lost all respect for, now he's decided to join Chelsea. He got uh, t- two goals for them in his final match to get... Uh, into the third position, so cementing their Champions League football next year. So it was uh, so far so good for our German teams. Uh, let's just hope Arsenal can continue their uh, FA Cup form from the weekend and take it into the league. Yeah, and I think on that note, when we're looking overseas, we should maybe not be talking about Australian teams for a wee while because <laughs> neither of them seem to be doing very well. And that's going to be made even harder by the return of rugby in Australia this weekend. So maybe we shouldn't be looking at that at all either. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we've got some more sports returning this week, which is really excellent news. As you mentioned, the 
Australian version of the Super Rugby uh, kicks off this Friday. First game is Reds versus Waratahs at Suncorp Stadium. Uh, we've obviously had the uh, New Zealand version of the Super Rugby being a huge success uh, story so far. So it's great to see that rugby is picking up and we're getting more uh, flavour of, of, of rugby across the world. Yeah, for sure. And I just hope for my own personal benefit that the Reds can be playing better at Suncorp than the Broncos are. And it'll also be great to see that the Western Force are rejoining the competition again. In 2017, uh, you might know that they got removed because they reduced the number of Australian teams to make room for the Sunwolves from Japan to come in. So it'd be great to see them back competing with their Australian rivals. Yeah, it's really, for me, when I think about it, quite a sad state of affairs in Australian Rugby Union back in 2017, that, that when they, you know, rightly so, brought recognised the steps that Japanese rugby's been making and, and, and the wonderful journey that that's... Uh, the, the sports going on in that country and they had to fit in a Japanese team and obviously there's the three conferences with, with the New Zealand, South Africa and Australian conferences and the fact that they went and took it from the Australian one yes geographically it might make the most sense but also the level of talent of Australian rugby union is is just dying and I think it's it was a reflection of that we're talking I mean you can't talk about you can't paint a picture of of international rugby history and tell the story of rugby union without Australia. The two-time world champions, they're, I think, their joint most appearances in a World Cup final with four, which they share with England and New Zealand. But when you look at where sport is going in Australia, it's it's very much falling down the pecking order. You've obviously got you know Australian rules football, cricket, and I think the big one that is making real strides is is soccer you know football is is growing and growing there with the, with the a league and everything and and what's suffering is the rugby union and to me i don't really know why but it's really sad to hear that was certainly in the i spent a limited time living in australia a few years ago and i certainly got that feeling that kind of at grassroots level rugby was nowhere near as kind of cared about or prioritized for as i, as I thought it would you kind of grow up in the UK as a rugby fan and you look at Australia and you think rugby might must be massive but actually when I was there it very much felt that in comparison to a lot of other sports at kind of grassroots and school level it was really not getting the kind of priority and the funding that you might thought and the kind of other sports were really taking precedent ahead of it kind of those sports you mentioned and also the big ones rugby league because rugby league is so massive in Australia kind of compared to anywhere else in the world that that rivalry with rugby union it's probably drawing more players to the league game than the union game. And then even sports like basketball, water polo, these sort of sports are really big in Australia as well. So kids have so many options of sports they can play and actually sports that are often perceived to be safer. So I think at that young level and grassroots level, the kind of investment and the time being put into the rugby doesn't seem to be what you'd expect. And that safety element's massive. And over the last couple of years, the, the IRB, International Rugby Board, has been putting in a lot of time to, to make grassroots rugby uh, as safe as possible and stop potentially scaring off some you know talented young players who, who have the safety concerns. The thing about Australia is it, it's so state-driven. From state to state, different sports are popular. And I, I think... From my knowledge, the one that really transcends that's cricket because it's the summer sport compared to the winter sports like the two two versions of rugby and, and, and AFL and, and soccer who have to compete. They're all competing for the same market and the same season. 
it seems to be that out of all of them, rugby union is the most specific to various states. Certainly when I spent some time there, I was in South Australia, rugby union wasn't even talked about. It just it just didn't exist. I know up in, in Queensland where you spent some time, it was very much rugby league territory. So it's only really a, a bit of Western Australia and New South Wales where there is where is rugby union compared to the other where other sports go across all seven states. Yeah. And that's and that's where I think where they're falling. I think I had friends who were spending some time in New South Wales and kind of in the school system there. And they said that even within the New South Wales schools, rugby union wasn't what it was 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And let's hope that I'm sure the authorities, you know, over there and the sports officials doing everything they can, because as I said, you can't, you can't tell the story of rugby union without Australia being a big part of it. And we don't want to see that being diluted and, and lost. Other rugby union news as well is a bit close to home. The, the pro 14, over here in well I say over here in Scotland Wales and Ireland but also Italy and South Africa announced that they'll be finishing the pro the, the pro 14 season a slightly amended and shorter schedule normally a, a pro 14 season is is 21 rounds this year they're reducing it to 15 what that means is 13 rounds have been completed so far and uh, so far, so the final rounds will be a case of just the local teams, so the Scottish-based teams, Italian-based teams, etc., just playing each other in local derbies and local, that local rivalry. So to fight against uh, the spread of coronavirus, they're trying to keep it local. And then on the back of that, all, all teams will have completed their full fixtures and the two conferences, it'll just be the top two from each conference will play in a semi-final and then the winners of those semi-finals will play in the finals. So a much more shortened season, but... At least we're getting the end to a season. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Obviously, the move to keep it within your own countries for the initial stages makes a lot of sense because it reduces the amount of international travel that's needed. But it's going to create, I think, quite an interesting dynamic because what I think we've seen in Scotland, Italy and South Africa, the two teams of two franchises are going to be playing each other in a series of games where Wales and Ireland have more teams, so they're going to play each team once. It's what it looks like, although that is yet to be confirmed. So that's going to totally change the dynamic of how the kind of next few games are played. And you're going to have these like series of matches between two tides, which is a very different kind of format of playing a different team each week. It probably isn't desired if you had your way with everything, but given the circumstances, I think it's still excellent that the tournament's going to be finished and it's going to make a great spectacle to see these kind of age-old rugby rivals coming against each other. And I think particularly here in Scotland, Edinburgh versus Glasgow is always hotly contested from all rugby fans in this country. So it's going to be great to see them play each other on so many occasions. What you said there really intrigues me. I was having a look earlier at the, the table or the two conferences to see who might benefit most from this. Because you're not only playing teams within your own country, are there certain countries who in this season have produced weaker sides? So just looking at the table, in in, in, in Conference A, uh, Leinster, they've won it. We, we're only going to be a couple of rounds left. They're, they're almost 20 points ahead of, of, of Ulster, who are in second. Um, and with it only being top two rather than top three progressing to the latter stages this year, it's going to be, Leinster are going to be one of those teams. But then if we look across to, to Conference B, Edinburgh, Edinburgh on 47 points in first. Munster on 45 in second. And then the Scarlets are on 39 in third. So with four points for a victory without any bonus points and only a 10-point deficit to potentially track down, the Scarlets are going to be playing their Welsh counterparts. Now, the, well, the other Welsh teams 
none of them are higher than fifth in their group. In fact, the Ospreys are bottom of Conference A, the Dragons are a fifth in that, and the, and the Cardiff Blues are sixth in Conference B. So if the Scarlets are trying to make a push and are playing against, as it looks like, basement dwellers in, in the other Welsh teams, compare that to, say, Munster and Edinburgh, who are pushing to be those top two places in Conference B. You know, Edinburgh are playing Glasgow every week. Glasgow themselves are pushing to make the finals in Conference A. So they're clearly having a, a decent season. They're clearly a good team. We've just said that Ulster and Leinster are top of Conference A. So if you're Munster trying to fight your way to get to the top of Conference B and you've got to play the top teams, it just seems to me all of a sudden that the Scarlets potentially might have the upper hand. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It certainly seems that way. And I think actually it's an interesting point you touched on with Edinburgh and Glasgow because they're both right in the hunt to get in those semi-finals. Edinburgh have been much improved under Richard Cockrell over the past few years and are trying to get to their first semi-final and maybe even ever, but certainly in a very long time. And Glasgow obviously been a good side for a while now. And if they're having to go against each other every single week when they're both right in that hunt for the semi-final, it's going to make their job really difficult. And as you said, it looks like Munster themselves are going to be struggling. Well, not struggling, but having a real task to come against Ulster and Leinster, who are also really strong franchises within the Pro 14 setup this year. So I think that's a very good point. Then it's going to certainly change the dynamic of the Pro 14 going forward. As with all these things, we're just delighted sports back. It's it's great that it's going to be back, but it's just really interesting to see what these wrinkles and things that, that the the different ways that sports have to implement around COVID and the pandemic, what that's meaning and what the sort of buy stories and byproducts are of this. And, and I think if any of those Irish or Scottish teams were to make the finals, then certainly they're going to have earned it. I'm sure that's what the coaches will be saying in in their dressing rooms and that's the sort of mentality they'll be having. But for me, it just makes it so much more difficult. But what also it means is these games, you know, especially the the Scottish and Irish, every game is going to have so much on it from both sides, which hopefully just leads to some really quality rugby being played. Yeah, agreed. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited for it to get started again. Yeah, it should be good. Uh, moving away from rugby and, and um, onto golf, one of the sports which has been quite prevalent in the return to return to sport the last couple of weeks, with it, with it being one of the first sports back. We talked a couple of weeks ago, Rory, about what Bryson DeChambeau was doing when he was trying to swing himself off his feet and and, and looking like I was at the driving range. <laughs> but it, it made you we talk about a really interesting question. As amateur golfers, we often hear the old adage: "Driving for show, putting for dough." Now, I'm starting to wonder if that's actually the case. Because if, you know, we see how well Bryson DeChambeau is playing at the moment, another top 10 finish, he's obviously identified driving the ball long is really important. So for me, if someone like that is putting that much emphasis on driving length, does that for mean, and we look at the, the top players in the world, Roy McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, who won this week, is driving and getting the ball up there, the most important thing? Well, I think certainly if you look on the surface level without going into the numbers, it certainly seems that way because you think of all the players who hit the ball really long. You talk about Dustin Johnson, who won this weekend, Rory McIlroy, Bryson DeChambeau. These are the best players in the world. Whereas you think of the great putters, someone like Zach Johnston, excellent golfer, but not in the same kind of breath as these sort of players we've just mentioned. And 
going back to the Roy McIlroy, I spoke a couple of weeks ago, how he's not potentially fulfilled his potential. And I think the thing is with Roy McIlroy is that he doesn't putt as well as he drives the ball. That's the thing. That's the thing that's always let him down is the putting and his ability on the green. So he has still managed to become a really great player I and mean, the best player in the world right now by driving the ball really long, having good iron play, but potentially not as putting as well as he may do. So potentially that suggests that putting now isn't as important as other things. Well, exactly. And, and you look at who the, the the leader going into the clubhouse after round three this week of the Travellers was. It, it was Brendan Todd. He had hit, obviously not the par threes, but he had hit 41 out of 42 fairways through his first three rounds. 41 out of 42 it's off impressive. the team. Incredibly impressive. Impre- and, and guess what? He was leading the tournament. Now, you're putting yourself in position... You, off the tee, you're going to have a chance. You know, uh, if you're putting yourself not out position, then are you going to be giving you these these massive putts? But so that made me think. So I went and you talked about how I'm going into numbers. So I went and did a little bit of research here. So I looked at 2019 on the PGA Tour, and I looked at a couple of driving stats and a couple of putting stats. So just bear with me. So this is 2019 on the PGA Tour. I looked at longest drivers. So the longest drivers were Cameron Champ, Rory McIlroy, Luke List, Dustin Johnson, and Wyndham Clark. I then looked what their world rankings place was at the end of the 2019 season on the PGA Tour and did an average. So, for example, Cameron Champ, he was 78th in the world. Rory McIlroy at the time, second in the world. Luke List, 143rd in the world. Dustin Johnson, fifth in the world. Wyndham Clark, 161st in the world. So average that out, top five length drivers on the tour in world rankings is 77.8. So you'd be ranked 77th in the world. You then compare that to strokes gained through putting. Top five, PGA Tour 2019, were Denny McCartney, Jordan Spieth, Dominic Bazzelli, Graham McDowell, and Andy Puntum. McCartney, 145th in the world. Jordan Spieth, 44th. Bazzelli, 423rd. Graham McDowell, 121st, and Andy Puntum, 48th. So that averaged out at 156th. So just very basic stats of looking at driving length compared to gain, shots gained on the green through putting. You're almost, almost double the world ranking points by driving the ball miles. Yeah, I think the stats clearly don't lie on this occasion. I think we are seeing that driving the ball a long way is now the most important thing in professional golf. Yeah. And, and just add that, you know, I, I looked at not just driving length, but driving accuracy, fairways hit off the tee, top five, you averaged out at 80th in the world. Okay. So, so it's not just about distance. It's about accuracy as well. I think we need to throw it out. I mean, I think all these people who say putting's for dough, completely pointless. Cause if you can't get yourself in position for birdie putts, then it's irrelevant how good you are. Yeah, I'm certainly, next time someone turns to me and says on the golf course, I'm going to be pulling out my stat book and proving to them that they are wrong and maybe make myself feel slightly better about myself when I three-putt on the green next time. I'm sure there's going to be people out there who, who might hear this and tell me I'm wrong, but it just seems to me that the way the game is going, that driving is becoming what is required and do we therefore need to look at, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, those who hit the ball furthest punishment if they don't then hit the fairway because it seems to be that just bombing it out there 
you, you, you put the margin so far in your favor that it's becoming, it's becoming too much of an advantage. As ever, there's been lots of things happening in the world of sports. So here's a roundup of some of our favorites. Utility Players Weekly Roundup. In the NFL this week, Cam Newton finally has a home. He's joined the New England Patriots in a one-year contract. New England moved from one MVP behind centre in Tom Brady onto Cam Newton. Very different playing styles. It'll be interesting to see how Bill Belichick utilises them. In tennis, there's going to be even more concern over the upcoming US Open as Novak Djokovic has tested positive for coronavirus which you can only imagine will make more players nervous about them being involved in the tournament. In netball, the ANZ Premier League sees the Central Pulse go 4 from 4 and remain top of the ladder. Unbeaten, they're hoping to retain their championship. Formula 1 returns this week as the drivers will be heading to Austria and there's a first in the sport as they'll be doing back-to-back Grand Prix on the same track. And finally, in cricket, we see Test Cricket make its return as the West Indies take on England without their captain, Joe Root, who is missing the first test for the birth of his second child. This week, we are delighted to welcome uh, one of the most recognisable women in uh, officiating for, for hockey, Sarah Wilson. She is a part of the elite umpiring panel for the Federation of International Hockey. She's had 109 caps as an international umpire. She's the 2017 Female Umpire of the Year. She officiated the bronze medal match in Rio at the Olympics uh, in 2016, as well as the Commonwealth Final, Commonwealth Games Final in 2018 gold medal match. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, not at all. How, how has the last uh, couple of months been for you? Obviously, with no sport going on around the world, I'm sure you probably had a pretty busy, busy schedule uh, of international stuff uh, that, was, that was removed. Yeah, um... I mean, obviously, I was meant to be going to the Tokyo Olympics, so we did have quite a, a busy schedule in the lead-up to that, which has obviously been postponed. So it kind of left me with a lot of free time, which I'm not really used to. So that in itself was quite challenging, and, you know, not, not much sport on TV to watch either. But, uh, you know, I kept busy at work. I've still kept training, which is, has kept me busy, uh, kept me fit. And, yeah, just just try to, to do different things and, yeah, try and learn other things at the same time. Yeah, I feel like lockdown's been, like, a great opportunity to kind of, as you say, do different things, learn new skills, push themselves outside the box, or so maybe do things they wouldn't have had time to do previously. Is there, like, one thing in particular that you have done over lockdown that you may not have done otherwise? Um. I've got a slight obsession with grass, and I know that might sound really <laughs> strange, but um, I've really enjoyed having time to properly water it and feed it and cut it in strips. And I know it makes me sound really sad, but I've, I've found a, new, a newfound love for my garden. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I, I, we could delve into what type of grass and all that kind oh, of things. But <laughs> I was going to really put you under pressure, but we won't. We won't. We won't. We won't, we won't do that down that alley. Don't worry about it. Um, you mentioned that you, there, you were still having to work. So something that you have to juggle is is wanting to pursue, continue to pursue a career with your, with your umpiring as far as you can, and you've done you know amazingly well so far. But you still are working and having another career alongside. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how that works and and juggling, you know, trying to be the best umpire you can, but also having to juggle everyday life and everyday career. Sure. Um, well, I'm a PE teacher. Um, which is a job that I I absolutely love. Um, I'm really fortunate that the school that I work in is incredibly supportive and 
I'm aware of that. that there's not a lot of people that I officiate with that have the same understanding, you know, work and, and, and bosses. So I'm really lucky that they do allow me time to travel, to go and do all these major tournaments. But then I'm back in the next day and, and straight back into working with primary one and primary two. And I've, you know, maybe done a final the night before, which, which is quite surreal. You know, I think it's time management. Um, I train in the morning before work so that I then have my working day and then I have time at night, whether that's going to, to work with clubs and, you know, do some practice matches. It just frees up a little bit more time for things like video analysis um, sports psychology that sort of thing so I think training in the mornings works really well for me um, and I've also got a fantastic network you know within my family and friends who are so supportive and understanding and you know without them I certainly couldn't do what I do um, and, and certainly not to that level. You mentioned there that um, you do have to do a lot of training and kind of keep up your training around mm. your work commitments and I was just wondering kind of what is the training that is involved or is needed to be an umpire at such a high level? I think a lot of time we consider the training that the athletes have to go through. We don't maybe consider the training that the umpires have to go through. And I was just wondering kind of what your like training schedule is comprised of. Well, I think, you know, I always bear in mind that a lot of the athletes that I'm umpiring are full-time athletes. You know, the, these, these men and women are incredibly fit and they're fast. And the way that the game's played now, is lightning quick. So the majority of the work that I do is, is speed work. I do a lot of sort of interval training, sprint training, um, strength and conditioning and sort of plyometric power stuff. Because if I am not in the right position to make the call, then I've missed it. So yeah, it's about anticipating the play, but I've got to be able to keep up with these players. Um, you know, I can run anywhere up to seven eight kilometers in a game as well it's not at a constant pace it is you know short sprints but you know the fitter I am and the better capacity I've got then hopefully I don't tire and lose concentration towards the end of the game when I have to make really really crucial decisions on on that you know in sports like like football and, and rugby where there's you know a professional body of of officials they are required to hit certain testing scores, whether it be on, on a yo-yo or a bleep test or, or, or a 2K run or, or whatever it might be. Is there any kind of, you know, regimented uh, fitness testing, whatever else, to, to get onto that elite panel of, of the officials in hockey? Yeah, it's the yo-yo test. That, that's the main test that we use. Obviously, because we're based all over the world, um, it's impossible to get us all together for a, for a test. Although it'd be a great holiday, but I was about to say, um, can I just fly everyone into into some wonderful <laughs> location? Maybe Barbados, just to, you know, Barbados. Wanna... Barbados sounds like a great place to run a yo-yo test. Um, <laughs> we basically have to ensure that we've got someone that's recognised within the International Hockey Association. So. You know, we're lucky within Scotland that we've got, you know, recognised umpire managers who are able to carry out these tests. So we try and get a group of us together. Not all of us are elite, but even within the Scottish system, they have to pass the same test. So we try and run it as a group because it's it's easier to, to do these sort of tests. When you're with a group of people, you can keep each other motivated and really push each other to, to reach your best. So those then get signed and they get sent away and 
there is a, a level that I have to meet. And, and, and if, for whatever reason, you know, lockdown's taking its toll, you had a little bit too much at Christmas or something, and, yeah. and, and you don't quite hit the times or, or, or targets, you know, mm-hmm. what's the kind of action, you know, do, do you immediately get yourself off the panel? Do you get a, a chance to sort of redeem yourself? What, what happens if you, if you don't quite hit those targets? Yeah, so I think what's good is that we like to think we've got quite an open channel so if I was ill or injured or whatever, I would obviously keep them up to date so that they know I'm just, you know, there's, there's a problem. It's not, I'm just not training. Um, it certainly isn't the case that, you know, you'd just be chucked off a panel or you'd be told, right, that's it, you're suspended or anything like that. It, it, it's, it's more a case of, okay, we've recognised that you're not quite where you need to be. What can we do to support you or how can we get you there? I suppose it's a different story if you're showing a pattern of, not making any improvement or or a decline. I think that's where there's a a more serious conversation. But fortunately for me, um, all has been plain sailing so far, and and, and I hope to keep it that way uh, for as long as I can. Yeah, if 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 your boss is listening, well said, Sarah. Well <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing that stands out to me there is that it is, I mean, as you'd expect, an extremely serious business and run in a very kind of professional manner. But as hinted on before, you aren't professionals, you are balancing jobs um, alongside your umpiring career. Do you think there is room in the future for umpiring within hockey to become professional at the top level and also at Scottish and more local level as well? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's um, something that's certainly been discussed. At the moment, it, it doesn't look likely because there, there just isn't the funding. There isn't the money. Yeah, I don't get paid for what I do. I've never you know, been paid for, for umpiring in hockey. In the future, I'd love to think that we could become professional. Um, you know, We're always looking to get better all the time, but obviously... There, there's constraints within that. Um, within Scotland, I, I really don't think it'll ever happen, uh, to be honest. But on a world stage, potentially. But like I say, that there just is not the money for me to, to go professional. Would I want to go professional is another question. I'm not entirely sure that I would want to do this full time, purely because I love what I do within my teaching job and I wouldn't want to give that up. And also there's a huge amount of pressure on what we do now more and more. And I think it's nice to kind of get away from that and get a bit of normality um, away from, you know, those stressful situations. So I think, I suppose, and hold to answer your question, there's a potential for it in the future, but until we get the funding, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think, I mean, I know a lot of sports are probably struggling with similar issues. Um, and maybe this is a question that's above your pay grade and it might be not for you to answer, but what do you think needs to happen within hockey to get that extra funding that it can then potentially look at using the money to do things like create a body of professional umpires? Well, I think in recent, what, they, what they've done really well is, is they created this thing called the FIH Pro League and it, it's basically a professional league between countries and it requires us to travel a lot um, so rather than um, only traveling for tournament purposes like world cups and europeans and you know olympics and things they now have this league so for example australia would come over and play great britain so they'd fly umpires in and then great britain would end up going back to australia and play their away fixture 
So that's created a lot of hype. It's got a lot more viewers in, and I think that's what they've done is raised the profile of hockey. There's a lot more accessibility now to watch hockey than there ever has been before and, you know, increase the popularity of it. So that's definitely the right way to go. It's better marketing and just basically promoting the sport. Um, but we're kind of in the early stages of that now, so it's going to take a while. So I think, you know, the more we can promote, then we can get bigger sponsors on board, which will obviously bring in more money. So it, it's kind of getting that ball rolling. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the Pro Hockey League because I was, was going to touch on that. Because obviously, I think uh, here in the UK, BT Sport has started to cover more hockey, which is a great thing to see. Anyone who's listening to the show know I'm a massive fan of hockey. But what does that mean in terms of your time constraints, in terms of what you're doing? You know, how, how much, what do you do when you're not doing these major tournaments? How much of your hockey umpiring is done just in the local leagues around Scotland? Which, as you said, there's not a huge amount of money and, and not a huge amount of opportunity, especially compared to its English counterparts, uh, which has a, a lot more investment. Do you find just help having to travel to kind of get to a level of match where you're umpiring at the highest standard or is it just a case of you, you stay locally how when you're not doing the international stuff how far do you have to travel to to do your your umpiring yeah um that's a, that's a really good question actually um i mean when i look at it I, I got to the olympics in rio and i was umpiring scottish hockey week in week out so it, it can't be that bad i suppose yeah the level of hockey isn't great but I really had to find my feet with it. And I think that's where I learned my trade. And I also think it's really important that I keep umpiring these games because I've got to put back into Scottish hockey, into Scottish sport, and that's really important. And, you know, I can't forget where I've come from and what all these amazing people have done for me in my career. I think it's only right that I continue to, to umpire my best on a Saturday, on a Sunday, whether it's in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dundee, whatever. I think, you know, that 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 really is important. With the Pro League, it does mean we're travelling all year round rather than just set times of the year. Um, and it's a completely new format for us because we don't fly out to a tournament that we've been preparing for for weeks and weeks and weeks. Then we have all our meetings and our briefings and then you've maybe got, you know, a couple of practice games just to get yourself into it. And then the tournament goes and you just go on and on and on through the tournament. And then that's you done. The Pro League, you'll fly in the day or the night before. You've only got a crew of four people. You then are on the pitch. You run, so I'll umpire the women's match. Let's say it's Holland-Belgium. And then I'll be on that pitch straight into the video box for the men's game after. To, to be the video umpire then we'll do the men's game and then we fly out and that's it and it's in and out there is no time to you know take it easy and get yourself ready and get yourself into that frame you're in you perform you're out so I could only be away for two days so so that took a little bit of getting used to because I had to change kind of my my habits my way of thinking and and that sort of thing so I mean, that's really interesting, the kind of direction that it's going and, and the expectations that's being that's being put on everyone involved. One of the, the big things that changed people's expectation a number of years ago, like all sports, was the uh, induction of, of using technology and using video. Any of the listeners who know, who listened last week will know I had a, I had a bit of a rant uh, about why, why football, the biggest sport in the world, is not looking at its, its sister sport in hockey to potentially see a system that works. How have you found 
in the last couple of years, the, the implementation of the way that the, the hockey has brought in a referral system and the use of technology. Do you like it as an umpire? Do you think it's fit for purpose? Would you changing it about it? What's that been like from, from an officiating side? I absolutely love it. I, th- I think it's absolutely fantastic. If if the the technology is up to scratch, because you know there, there are some some stadiums you go to where it's absolutely fantastic, and others where it's not so great, and that that can make your job really difficult when when you're in the box. But you know, on field, I think it's it's brilliant. You know, you, you just you can't take it personally if, if a team asks for a referral and you put it up and you trust your colleague to make that decision and it comes back and the players are correct, you've got it wrong, you can't take that personally. It's part of the game. You just, you know, you've just got to put your hands up and say, right, guys, sorry, here we go. It's, it's a penalty corner. Ultimately, we want to get the decision right. You know, we want what's right for the game. So it's not about me. It's about the, the game. It's about the players. And so I think it's great that we can, we can get these decisions right. Yeah, there are times where we don't get it right, and that that just comes down to to sort of human error. But I think as a whole, it's it's absolutely brilliant. I really do. I think it's great. Um, things that I would change about it, I think that the video one part should have a little bit more say in things that happen. Um, I'll give you an example. At the moment, if something happens in the middle of the pitch, there is nothing that the video one part can do about it. We can only use it within the 23 metre areas. Now, let's say there was a red card incident. Someone had hit a player with their stick in the middle of the pitch. Nobody's seen it, but I'm sitting in the box and I've asked the technical team to to review that situation and I can see that it's a blatant red card. I think in those situations, we should have the capacity to be able to go down and say, this is a red card for number 21 or whatever it is, because I think they're game-changing decisions. so, so I would maybe have that addition in it, but the rest of it, I think, you know, we're 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 almost almost perfect. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's really great that you really approve and that you really are kind of happy with how the video referral system is working. Um, as Ali mentioned, he had a big rant last week about how maybe football could potentially learn from hockey with their issues they're having around video referral. Do you think there is scope for sports in general to learn from other sports and how? they're using it successfully and do you think potentially football should be looking at hockey to kind of work out how they could potentially get video technology right in the future? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We have to learn from other sports, whether it's as a player, as an official, as a CEO, whatever, it doesn't matter. Of course you can learn from other sports and, you know, we can't be stubborn with that. You know, we've got to be open uh, have, have a growth mindset, you know, and watching football with VAR, frustrates the life out of me at times because I just don't see why they can't have a similar model to what we have. It's efficient, it's quick and I would like to think that we get the majority of the the decisions right. So yeah, there's definitely room for improvement with the VAR system and why they haven't sought advice from both rugby and hockey is beyond me. If I'm being completely honest. <laughs> Ali's looking very, very smug beside me. <laughs> I am always right. I have been telling people this for years. I am always right. No, no, I, I completely agree, Sarah. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. It, it baffles me and, 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 and it goes beyond stubborn, from my opinion. But mm-hmm. uh, before we sort of go down that rabbit hole any further, um, 
obviously you've done incredibly well to get where you've got with your umpiring uh, so far and long may that continue. I'm just really interested on, on how you got to, to the position you're in, the journey you went on, because I think if you speak to any young sportsman or woman, whether it's at school or club level as a junior, it's probably not many who say, I want to be an umpire, a referee, an official of, of some capacity. And, you know, what was that journey like and, and how did you get to where you are? Well, it certainly wasn't anything that I'd planned. Um, and for anyone that played hockey with me knew that I was probably one of the fieriest people on the pitch. So I was playing hockey, a lot of hockey. Um, I was played up to Scottish 21s. Um, I had this ongoing back injury. At that age, you know, I was sort of, eight, I think I was maybe 18, 19. I couldn't really see a way out of it at that time. And I just thought, you know what? I can't keep doing this. And I was watching all my peers, you know, going forward and improving and developing and moving on. And I just kind of felt like I was stuck in this rut, if you like. So I took a bit of time away from hockey. Um, and the club that I was uh, playing for at the time had said, look, we kind of need somebody to tamper our Saturday games. Do you think you'd be keen to do it? And I kind of thought, oh, you know, well, I'm not really doing anything else. So I'll go for it. And I quite enjoyed it. And there was someone there who was watching a game one Saturday who was an umpire and said, look, Sarah, you know, I'm not being funny, but you could have a career in umpiring. And I kind of laughed it off thinking, a career in umpiring? I don't think so. And then I kind of did inter-district stuff and then, you know, umpired under-16 Scottish stuff. From there, Scottish Hockey put me forward for this thing called the UDP, which is a, a European umpire development programme. Um, and that was a three-year-long programme within Europe. And I was successful to get onto that, which was amazing. It opened up so many opportunities for me. Uh, once I graduated from that, I then just went up through the, the levels and got to World Panel. And that really is kind of it. You know, I was young. I was fast-tracked. You know, I was kind of new on the scene. And I think they thought, wow, okay, this is, you know, someone that we can kind of push. And, and the rest is kind of history, really. So, so your peers on the panel that, that you officiate with, do they kind of, have they got similar stories in terms of they themselves were, were uh, keen up and coming players and then for whatever reason, it didn't quite fall their way. Um, and, and it sounds like that. Are you maybe one of the younger members? How, how do you compare to sort of the peers that you, uh, that you officiate with? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, when I first started on the, the sort of international scene, I was young and there were a lot of older umpires and with a, a whole range of stories, I suppose, some injuries, some people who really enjoyed playing, but were quite honest in saying that they weren't the best players. And actually, they then ended up having a far more successful career and went a lot further than they would have ever as a player, you know, as an umpire. Um, some people just really enjoy the rules and are a bit geeky about that sort of thing. Um, and, and so the, there's a whole mix. Some people still play and umpire, which is amazing. But now, you know, I say I'm one of the older ones, I'm 32, but, you know, I am now one of the, the sort of middle of the range to older. There's a lot of young talent coming through, which is just brilliant. So what you're saying to me is I, as a, as a failed hockey player, I still have an opportunity to get a career as an umpire. <laughs> Good, you, you've inspired me, Sarah. Thank you very much. There's, there's still time yet, Alan. <laughs> yeah, so brilliant. Um, obviously, you've had the opportunity to go to some fantastic 
you know, tournaments to umpire and be involved in, as we mentioned, the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics being up there, I can imagine. You hear kind of rumours coming out. Well, actually, first of all, where, where do the officials stay when you go to these tournaments? We hear all about the Olympic Village, et cetera, for the athletes. In terms of where you're housed within that, is, is the officials and, and team members and stuff all together or is it a separate place that you stay? So we're not obviously in the athletes' village. I think you know there, there are many reasons for that, but it, it depends on on the the tournament or the event. So, for example, in Rio, we were staying in basically army barracks, and I think the majority of officials were there, which was really cool because I was having breakfast with rugby sevens uh, referees and you know someone who I was speaking to who was then going on to do the javelin that day and. So that was really cool to kind of meet other people and, you know, find out a little bit more about how they officiate in their sport. Whereas in the Gold Coast, we were in a hotel and all the the hockey officials were there. But I think we were maybe the only officials there, but the other officials were in another hotel. So it, it really just depends on the event and the setup of the event. But we're definitely not not in the athletes' village. That that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine that maybe sort of conflicting, conflicting uh, interest there. It's just really interesting because yeah. you hear um, the, all these rumours coming out about obviously at the Olympics the sort of riotous behaviour that goes on amongst the athletes once they've finished their their given yeah. you know sports and things like that. And it just really intrigues me. Is, is a lot of the rumours you kind of hear true? Do, do people let their hair down and, and, and go loose? And is that something that happens as well with the, in, in the umpiring circles? Well, I think, I mean, certainly let our hair down, but I think it, it's also really important for us to remember that our job's not done until the last day, you know? The nature of what we do, we don't find out our appointments until, you know, the last day. So, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to be required or not. It's not a case of, Sarah, thanks very much for your time so far in this tournament, but you are no longer required. And that's my job done, you know. On the last day, there are still, you know, bronze medal match, gold medal match. If 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 it's a setup where there's playoffs, those games still have to be officiated. So in my mind, you know, and, and along with all the other officials, we're totally focused until the job's done. But I tell you what, when that final whistle goes on that last game, it is just pure elation. You know, all that hard work, all the sacrifices that you've made and things have gone really well. It's just amazing. And then you can go and have a really good time after. Yeah, I can certainly imagine that kind of feeling of elation you'd have. Um, And we're unfortunate that that we're not going to have the Olympics this year that we are all looking forward to and that. I'm sure you are preparing a lot for. How do you think that the Olympics being postponed till next year is going to affect sport, both hockey and the widening sporting community? Um, I mean, when it was, you know, obviously, well, not cancelled, but rearranged, you know, I think everyone was in a way relieved because no one knew what was going on. You know, travel had been stopped. I think everyone was concerned, you know, are we going to be at our best for the Olympics? And if not, is that really fair? So there was almost a relief, certainly from, from me, I, I was relieved because I knew that I wasn't having the best preparation and, and that, that didn't feel right to me. But also my thoughts did go out to those athletes who 
you know, were maybe considering retiring after the Olympics, who are maybe a wee bit older and who are now going to have to put their bodies through another year of training. And that's tough, physically and mentally. So, you know, I did have a thing, you know, I was thinking, wow, what a shame for these athletes who maybe this is their only opportunity to go and will they be fit and in peak condition next year? Who knows? Um, but I think a lot of people have put things in perspective, have realised what, what is and what isn't important. So it's almost like the hockey family just really took a sort of a view of, you know, what's really the bigger picture here. Yeah, I I think we can all take stock of uh, of the wider picture and what and what's going on and and the importance of of sports in general. Um, you know, in their individual sport as a collective clumping together, uh, and hopefully that that will lead to an even better Tokyo twenty twenty one. It will be uh, hopefully in front of fans next year. Right, Sarah, we get all our guests uh, to run a gauntlet of forty five seconds of questions, so we can dig into the psyche of our guests a little bit deeper and, and see what really sort of they enjoying. Let's get them ticking. So are you ready to be under a little bit of pressure? Oh, always ready for pressure. Okay, excellent. Well, I see you, your job is, is normally officiating under pressure. So it will, you're now going to be more in the limelight. So oh, but Rory, if you want to set up the music, set up the time. There's no time to run the gauntlet. Best chocolate in a celebration box? Oh, bounty. Bake Off or MasterChef? Bake Off. Did Carol Baskin kill her husband? A hundred percent. Star, uh, star mix or fantastics? Fantastics. Socks and sandals. What's up with that? Oh, awful. What came first, chicken or the egg? Chicken. Truth or dare? Truth. Donald Duck never wore trousers, but always had a towel on after he came out of the shower. Can you explain why? Uh, because Disney are a little bit weird that way. McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. Boyzone or Westlife? Westlife. Skiing or beach holiday? Beach holiday. Very good. How- <laughs> <laughs> you, my, my mouth certainly dropped when you said bounty for the celebration question. Because <laughs> bounties are normally ones left at the end. Do you want to explain that? I, I, I love coconut. I absolutely love coconut. We'll let, we'll let you off. We'll let you off with that one. And uh, I guess, uh, I guess, Carol Baskin, you're, you're convinced she did it. Oh, she did. Yeah. I mean, I was a little bit obsessed with the with the, the Tiger King series. I thought it was brilliant. He's such an intriguing guy. And uh, yeah, I think Carol Baskin's uh, definitely covering up there for sure. <laughs> oh, God, okay. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to have you on. It's really fantastic insight. You know, often a lot of the time the officials um, only come into the, the limelight when potentially things haven't quite gone their way. So to be able to hear what, what it's about and, and your journey and your thoughts on it has been really interesting from our perspective. And, and thank you once again. Oh, guys, thanks so much for having me. I've honestly, I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's been a great um, sharing my story with you. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks Sarah. Okay. Wow, Rory, really, really interesting stuff. I actually haven't had much opportunity to have exposure to, to hear from officials before and some of the things they have to go through. And some of the, some of the stuff that Sarah's talked about there was really powerful. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe she'd never been paid for umpiring before. That blows my mind that to have reached that level in officiating and to have never been paid, I just think is nuts. And in my opinion, shows that something needs to change in lower level or less kind of mainstream sports. 
I know to have not been paid anything and do it for the love of the game. I mean, each week we talk about sacrifices that these people are making, and there's there's none more than that. To, and it's lucky she's got such an understanding employer who who allows her to do that. The game's not going to run and continue to grow without a professional body of officials looking after it. Right, time for our top threes this week. I uh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to claim that I make it all one all overall. <laughs> I, I, I won on Twitter. I said we drew on Instagram, so, so I'm going to take the win. So that's that's one all in the in the standings. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll give you that. I'll, it was close this week. Very close. It was very close. Thank you for all those who engaged. So the third round of our top threes takes us to a slightly different route. But the biggest or, or most fairy tale story, the most fairy tale story that, that we have witnessed and we have watched and we have thought just been blown away by, by the unlikelihood of it happening. What I will say is that Leicester winning the Premier League, we decided was not going to be allowed to be entered because we'd, we'd have both said it. So, <laughs> so, so to take that out and, and provide some slightly different thoughts, the Leicester winning the Premier League was removed from, from being selected. Yeah, I think. This is the finally the point where we are going to acknowledge that Liverpool won the league. We've been trying our best not to mention it because it hurts us both greatly that Liverpool are now Premier League champions. But given that a lot of people in Merseyside this weekend will believe their season was a fairy tale season, that we thought we should honour that in some capacity by having our best sporting fairy tales as the top three. Exactly, and, and well done to Liverpool. I think it's safe to say the job that Jurgen Klopp has done there is is remarkable for sure. So. Shall I go first, as you went first last week? Okay, that's fine. And there's a bit of a common theme. If you go first here, you seem to win. So, <laughs> so I'll let you go first, and we'll see if the and the listeners can help me buck the trend. Uh, again, last minute deciding my order. In third place, I'm going to do Shane Lowry's 2019 Open Championship win. So last year, the Open Championship returned to Royal Port Rush for the first time in years and years. I don't have the amount of years on top of my head, but in over 50 years. And it was the first time it had been played on Ireland and away from mainland Britain in that period of time. And anyone who watched the Open last year and saw the way Shane Larry kind of rose to the top in the early rounds and then carried himself all the way through the weekend with the kind of Irish support on his back, Shane Larry being an Irish golfer who has never achieved great things in the game of the golf, but has been a good professional for a long time. And kind of him have that moment in Ireland, on home soil, on that weekend, and how the crowd just cheered him the whole way through that final round on Sunday was just one of them like really kind of touching, sporting, fairy tale moments that seems like what was meant to be to have an Irish winner on Irish soil. And people would have said, well, Rory McIlroy was the kind of real fairy tale that weekend, but I almost thought it was something nice about having Shane Lowry, who was maybe the more under the radar, less recognised Irish golfer, kind of rise to prominence in Ireland. So I think for me, that's a great way to start the top three. Number two, now this might be a slight bias being an Arsenal fan, but it has to be Thierry Henry's winning goal against Leeds in his first match of the, back at the Emirates. When he came off the bench, in one all in an FA Cup match against Leeds with about 70 minutes and everyone kind of cheered him on. He was back at the Emirates after after so many years and the top scorer at the club. And for him to just get that ball in the box, to put it past the peeper and go 2-1 up was just one of those things that any fairy tale would write. So I think that's such a great number two. And number one is... 
an interesting one for me because it comes from a sport I've never been that, been that engaged with. I've never been that engaged with tennis. But I think everyone in the UK, Andy Murray's first ever Wimbledon win will be the ultimate fairy tale because Wimbledon has been such an iconic British event for so long. And it's been so long before we had a British winner. And Andy had been tipped from such a young age to be that winner. And having had the year before where he'd lost the final and he'd broken down in tears and interviews, and then for him to come back and win the final the year later, it's one of those moments where you go, I know where I was when Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time. I mean, I was personally playing cricket in, in Glasgow and you knew the moment he had won because all the flats from or all around the ground were going absolutely wild. We weren't watching the game, but we all knew that was the moment that Andy Murray won. And I just think having been predicted to be the first British winner of Wimbledon all through his career for the moment that he finally did it was just such an amazing fairy tale moment in sport. Very good. I like it. I can see where you're coming from. Uh, some really, really good ones there. I've gone down a slightly different route. Well, I've gone for ones that not necessarily aren't my fairy tale ones, but I can have sort of stuck with, I can see the fairy tale story element in them. First one is also tennis. It's 2001. Wimbledon was won by Goran Inanisovic, only player to have won Wimbledon as a wild card entry. Now, Goran had been to the final three times before in 92, 94, and 98. So this is a fourth attempt. So for almost a decade, he'd been getting to the final as a seeded player or a ranked player and unable to get over the line. And he'd had a couple of down years. And to come back three years after his last final, only because he was given a wild card and to win the thing, just blows my mind. When you talk about thinking you've had your chances and you've missed your, the time's gone and to come back and do it when no one was expecting it, when it was against all odds, every game he was written off but made it to the final and won. And that just, and he, the way he broke down afterwards just always sticks with me. Uh, number two, I would say one fairy tale that's overlooked because it completely stopped another fairy tale. And that is... Greece winning Euro 2004, beating Portugal in the final, whilst the tournament, for the first time ever, was being hosted in Portugal. And on the way to that, they beat Portugal in the group stages, they drew with Spain to get out of the group, they beat France, who are the holders, and then beat Portugal, the hosts, again in the final. Now, I was in Greece for the semi-finals, and so again, I might be a little bit biased because I was caught up in the fever of how the locals were dealing with it. But they went into tournament ranked 35th in the world in a group with Spain and host Portugal, and no one even bothered looking at them. Every round, it's been brilliant, it's been a fairy tale, but it's going to come to an end. And they just kept going about it and kept going about it and went about it their own way. And to win that tournament against the hosts in Lisbon and that Portuguese team is just always, always going to stick with me. And finally, I'm amazed you didn't come up with this one, to be honest. Finally, no fairy tale story can beat South Africa winning the Rugby World Cup in 1995. For Francois Pinar and Nelson Mandela, that iconic photo for what it meant for the country, what it meant for the journey, what it meant for everything about it, especially against the All Blacks. It was all about John Alumu and what he was doing. If anyone's seen the film Invictus, you'll have had an understanding. I was very young at the time, so didn't really understand the power of it. But looking back now and speaking to people, it was just written in the stars. You'd, you know, fairy tales are things that just all the magic has to line up for it to come 
mantra and the way it did and what it did to inspire and spark a country and bring it together. I think it's it's required in some places around the world right now. But to have to to see and look back on what happened there and and the iconic pictures, everyone pulling a country together, it was just phenomenal to see. So I think that has to clearly be the, the best fairy tale story. Right. Okay. Thanks very much once again for joining us. It's been another fantastic week of sports with lots of ups and downs. And we look forward to talking about another week of sport next week with you. See you next Wednesday and stay safe.